listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The last time today's guest was on, in October of 2005, I introduced him as needing no introduction. The same is true today. If you've listened to the show, you've probably read one of his books. He is Gary Gallagher, and his new book is Causes One Lost and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War. We'll be talking Civil War movies on Civil War Talk Radio. As a child, I spent a lot of time at the big office building just reading books. My mom insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to finish my education. So she dropped me off the office building before going to her second job. She didn't want me working at the vacant lot like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from Greenville, North Carolina, Civil War Talk Radio Auxiliary Headquarters at my home office, not from the campus of East Carolina University. So in one sense, I don't even need to deny responsibility on behalf of ECU for anything that happens here today, but we do it out of habit. It's a legal disclaimer moment. And we go forward to say that it is a beautiful day in June, early June of 2008. The sun is shining, metaphorically, not actually, it's cloudy and thunderous outside, but it's a happy day here at CWTR headquarters and everywhere uh, that all right-thinking people live, except perhaps in Pittsburgh, because my home team, the Detroit Red Wings, have brought home the Stanley Cup for the fourth time in 11 years, and uh, all is well in the hockey-playing world. but that's not Civil War talk, so we'll leave that behind and move on. Uh, I look forward to talking Civil War with those of you out uh, uh, at some of the speaking engagements I've mentioned in the past, but the schedule has changed so that the, the Did Lincoln Own Slaves World Tour scheduled to go to the Filson Club in June uh, is going to be rescheduled for the fall uh, uh, for various reasons, so I'll next be showing up in public uh, at the Civil War Institute in Gettysburg on June 25th, and then in Richmond, uh, Virginia on July 8th. Otherwise, we're trying to slow things down for the summer. The show will, as it has done in past years, go on hiatus at the end of June, and we'll take a couple months off to recover, read some new books, meet some new people, uh, and generally prepare for another 
season of Civil War talk radio. Uh, and one exciting change we'll have by next season is new telephones. Here at East Carolina University, the original phone system uh, that I use each week was installed, I would guess, during the Nixon administration based on the look of it. Uh, there are no parts available for it anywhere. It's kept functioning only by cannibalizing uh, spare phones. It is really a uh, monstrosity. The new ones will be voice over Internet. We will be entering the late 20th century, uh, only a decade late, and uh, be able hopefully to have uh, even better sound quality and some new capabilities. So that's something to look forward to in the, the fall season when we get there. But in the meantime, we're here today. It is a nice day. I'm in my home office. I've locked the door uh, to the office. I've given the uh, giant standard poodle a pig's ear to chew on so she will not bark randomly throughout the show this time, hopefully. And uh, it looks like we're ready to go. Crossing my fingers, however, that our guest is here, that all is well, because the last two times we've tried to have uh, the very well-known Gary Gallagher as our guest here, uh, things have intervened, personal issues or technological troubles. Uh, let's see if it works this time. Gary, are you there? I am. And I can hear you this time. Well, that's a bonus. Uh, we're getting somewhere then. Very good. Well, thanks very much uh, for your patience in, in, in uh, putting up with the, our last attempt to do the show together a couple weeks ago when I, that had not happened in three years on the show. We, we couldn't hear each other. But, uh, but here we are. And uh, uh, you are, I believe, uh, still in California, is that right? I am. I'm out at the Huntington Library in San Marino for the rest of 2008. Well, that that is uh, lotus land for the historical scholar to be at the Huntington. Uh, how are you enjoying it? I'm I'm enjoying it the way most people would enjoy lotus land, very, very much indeed. <laughs> well, the... Uh, the the project you've you've worked on here most recently uh, that that I thought we could talk about today causes one lost and forgotten uh, strikes me as something that must have been a great deal of, of fun to write uh, to to write a book about how the war has been captured in movies. Uh, uh, you you get paid to watch movies. Uh, I've, I've yes, and I watch them even if I don't get paid. I I enjoyed working on this book very much because it brings together. Two of my crucial interests, one is in films and how they present history, and, and the other is my interest in the Civil War and how Americans have remembered it. Well, let's talk about these movies. Uh, uh, the first thing that the, the pedantic critic will say is, is none of these, no movie about the Civil War can possibly capture it or say anything worthwhile about it. Uh, there are too many compromises to be made. Uh, it is, is the medium just inherently imp impractical for capturing uh, anything true about the Civil War? Girls, hang up the phone, please. That would be my uh, daughter uh, upstairs. There are still some drawbacks trying to keep us from having the conversation where it's It seems as if we are snake-bitten. It does. It does. There will be some, some, some grounding taking place here at the uh, Prokopovich household this evening uh, uh, for that uh, but, one. But to answer your question, yes. that, that, no, we shouldn't expect films to present history in a way that would make scholars happy. But, but that's really beside the point, because Hollywood does present history, and it presents it to far more people than anything any of us write. 
and and so I think we need to be aware of the impact of the kind of history that Americans get from sources beyond the literature that we all contribute to. Is that something that we don't do well as a profession, uh, deal with, with how people get their history really? I don't think we deal with it very well beyond railing uh, against this or that influence that doesn't uh, bring to the table everything that we think we do uh, as scholars, whether it's uh, popular historians, which is one of the worst things in an academic world that you can call anyone else. It's almost as if there's a fear in our world that somewhere someone might be reading what we write. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that to happen. Don't want no, that no. to happen. No, that's yeah. very dangerous. Well, uh, there's no fear of that with movies. People are going to the movies, no matter how uh, how bad the opening week is going to draw. And far more people go to even the least successful movies than read the most successful books that any of us write. That was an interesting point you made. You talked about uh, James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. Mm -hmm. that, that sold in the hundreds of thousands. About three-quarters of a million, all told in 20, roughly 20 years. And yet, uh, take uh, whatever the worst movie of last week, I won't even name a movie, because whenever you're listening to this, uh, listeners, there will be a bad movie released the previous weekend. <laughs> That's right. But and chances are several million people went to it, or at least a million. Anyway, far more would go in one weekend than would read even a stunningly successful book like Jim's, Battle Cry of Freedom, over the course of a couple of decades. So this is really where people are getting their their entertainment, their information, and, and if we don't engage it, it's our loss. I think it's important that we do engage it. I think that uh, without question, at least in my mind, more Americans have formed impressions about the Civil War from watching Gone with the Wind than from all the books written by all the historians who've dealt with the war since that film debuted in 1939. Well, you certainly you talk about Gone with the Wind in this book, um, but you you organize your your treatment of these films uh, into some categories to make it manageable. Uh, yes, talk about that. All right, I'm I'm, not, I'm neither a film critic, uh, so I don't come at it from from that point of view, nor an art critic. Part of the book deals with with recent art too. What I'm interested in is which of what I see as four great interpretive traditions that the Civil War generation itself created. Which of those four fares best, which fares least well, and so forth, in, in film and artistic representations of the war now? And very briefly, they are, I call them the Union Cause tradition. Uh, most white Northerners would have thought this was the most important thing to come out of the war, that the Union was saved, small-d democracy, representative government, and so forth. Uh, the Lost Cause tradition, which was that held by uh, the vast majority of white Southerners who had supported the Confederacy, the emancipation cause tradition, which would have argued that freeing four million uh, slaves was the most important outcome of the war. And then the reconciliation cause tradition, which was embraced by many white people, north and south, uh, who agreed to not talk so much about which side was right, but to celebrate the American virtues, such as bravery on the battlefield and so forth, that soldiers on both sides had shown. Well, of these four causes, which one wins the battle of the theater screen? Well, now I think emancipation is the default understanding of the war in Hollywood. For many years, for half a century, between Birth of a Nation in 1915 and Shenandoah in 1965, the film Shenandoah in 65, the lost cause clearly reigned supreme 
in Hollywood, and it is central to the, the two most important and successful Civil War films ever made, Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. Uh, but in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, and beginning in the late 80s and moving on down to now, emancipation has become more and more uh, the most important way that Hollywood understands the war. The lost cause is clearly in retreat. Uh, reconciliation is always present in one form or another, but the real loser, the big loser, uh, over the last two decades has been the union cause. Well, why is that? Why The union cause, you said that's how white northerners would have understood the war at, at the time the war ended. I think that would have been what most white northerners would have said was the most important outcome of the war, that the nation was put back together, that the work of the founding generation had been preserved, and that the democratic example, Lincoln's last best hope of earth, uh, remained in place in a world where democracy from an American viewpoint, a, a northern American viewpoint, had been in retreat since the failed revolutions in Europe of the late 1840s. So, yes, I think more people would have held the Union cause interpretation than any other. And I think, I mean, I don't think we can pin down precisely why it's in retreat, but I think there are some factors, one of which is that it's, it seems nebulous to modern Americans. Union in the sense that it would have been understood by the Civil War generation, isn't even in our political vocabulary anymore. It almost literally means nothing uh, to most of the students I teach, for example. It's hard for them to understand why white Northerners, by the hundreds of thousands, uh, would go into the Army to protect the Union when there didn't seem to be any overt threat from Confederates to their immediate well-being. Uh, Confederate armies aren't going to march into Michigan. They're not going to go into New England. Why would these people think that this was worth fighting for? And, and I mean, you don't have that problem with the other issues. And I, I will certainly verify what you say in terms of students. They they don't get why white Northern soldiers were were ideologically committed to their cause or what their cause was. If the South doesn't want to be in the Union, why are you fighting to keep them? Why in? not just let them go? Right. Uh, well, why 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 not just let them go? Well, I think because of that. Uh, that means that the great experiment has failed. If the one time that the White South doesn't like the outcome of a presidential election really doesn't like the outcome of a presidential election, they just decide to break up the nation, then that would be a signal to the rest of the world, argued many white northerners, that the great experiment in democracy had failed, that a people wasn't capable of self-government, could not make it through rough patches uh, without seeing the whole edifice come down. And they believed that that would be a tragedy not only for Americans, uh, but also uh, for others around the world who hoped that democracy might spread rather than retreating. If, if you take the time to lay this out uh, in a college classroom or, or between the pages, between the covers of a book, uh, set the context, as you said, of the failed revolutions of 1848, the sense that democracy is in retreat, that we are the last best hope, the, the city on the hill, the beacon of democracy, uh, then if you read enough rhetoric, I think you can get an audience to feel some of that union fervor once again. Uh, but movies don't do this. They don't do that. And on one level, I understand why, because it would take a fair amount of dialogue, usually you would think, to make that point. And, die. and, and filmmakers, frankly, they make movies to make money. They don't care whether they get interpretations right. I don't even think they're necessarily aware of which of these interpretations they are offering. Now, some might be. I think Ron Maxwell would pay more attention to this <laughs> than most, but for the most part, they want 
films with dramatic uh, movement, good character development, and uh, something that will keep people in the seat, send them home happy, and have them tell other people to go see the film. I do think, however, some films show us how much can be accomplished just in a single scene, and, and one that I think many people would be familiar with is the scene in Casablanca, where in Rick's bar, where they play La Marseillaise, and the German officers are there, and, and the camera, it only lasts two minutes, this scene. The camera goes from face-to-face of these uh, French men and women in North Africa with enormous emotion, and you can see how troubled they are by the fact that their nation is has basically capitulated to German military might, but there's real emotion there. Uh, Closer to what we're talking about today, there's a scene in Gone with the Wind, the fancy dress ball scene in Atlanta, where there's a huge portrait of Jefferson Davis, Confederate flags festoon the walls, and you get a sense of a commitment to a nation that would prompt someone like Melanie Wilkes to give her wedding ring, which means a great deal to her. Uh, Scarlett gives hers as well. That's not a great sacrifice, but for (laughs) Melanie it is. And you get a sense that there aren't scenes like that, comparable scenes that deal with union. Well, you know, I'm not a filmmaker either uh, or a film critic, but it just seems like someone if they had the motivation to, could come up with some kind of way to capture in visual I, I think imagery. they could. I think the Union also suffers a bit from the fact that it, I mean, the lost cause always, there was, there, there's this romantic dimension to the Confederacy in many quarters because it seems so different from us. But the Union, the United States, as I prefer to say during the Civil War, with its larger cities, its more uh, industrial economy and so forth, it looks a lot more like us. It doesn't seem that different. It doesn't seem exotic to us. And I think a lot of people who are unhappy with aspects of the modern American state uh, tend to project some of that onto the Union. And, And it comes from both sides of the political spectrum. I think that conservative or libertarian critics uh, many of them tend to say the Civil War on the North's part was just an exercise in making government bigger and more powerful, and that's what Lincoln and his pals were doing. They helped create this intrusive modern state. At the other end of the spectrum, you have people who say, yes, this state came out of the Civil War, and it's been engaged in wreaking havoc around the world ever since with economic and military imperialism. It's easy to dislike the North, the United States, Uh, within a Civil War context, I think, from either of those angles. And the most dramatic evidence of this is how many films portray white United States soldiers from the Civil War. They're portrayed in a very negative fashion as part of this sort of crunching juggernaut that goes across the countryside, terrorizing civilians, African Americans, Native Americans in something like Dances with Wolves. The army looks very like the United States Army in Vietnam is imagined uh, in many of the films in the 1970s and 80s. So there, there's not much sympathy for the Union. Let me throw out one other thought. Is it possible that the Union cause is so so permanently successful, so, so much not threatened by any external or internal enemy, that there's just, uh, you know... It, it, it's, it's not even like rooting for the Yankees. Uh, it's worse than rooting for the Yankees. <laughs> there's, there's just nothing. Uh... I think that's. I think that's part of it because it's hard to imagine. I think uh, certainly again among students the kind of internal threat to the integrity of the nation now that brought so many people um, into the army in 1861. It's just. I mean, we've been the most powerful 
nation in the world, at least since the end of World War II, and it's simply hard to imagine that kind of situation. So we're certainly not the under, we, the, the, the United States, are not the underdogs no. uh, anymore, and it's hard, no. to, hard to create that feeling. Now, you mentioned Union soldiers also are not portrayed well. What, what are examples of that? Well, I think there are a number of, of examples of them. I'll take an example from Cold Mountain. Uh, the only time United States soldiers really appear in Cold Mountain, it is as a patrol that comes upon a yeoman farmstead, and they and there's a woman there with her infant child, and the Confederate protagonist Inman is off hiding uh, on a hill because he doesn't want to be captured. But these these soldiers take her infant, lay the child out in the cold bare ground, and then the officer with this group uh, commences uh, raping the woman uh, until. So here you have them terrorizing an infant trying to rape a woman, uh, and there are scenes like that in, in other films as well, and many other scenes in which you just get a sense in Dances with Wolves. We have a United States soldier completely disenchanted with what's going on uh, in the Civil War. He can't find himself, find anything worth fighting for until he goes out among the Sioux and helps them defend a village against uh, some other Native Americans who are attacking them. He has, says in voiceover, it's the first time in his life he's understood that there was something worth fighting for, not some dark political purposes, he puts it, uh, translates into union. Well, we've come a ways where the union becomes just a dark political purpose. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back. Our guest today is Gary Gallagher. We're talking about his new book, Causes One Lost and Forgotten, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Music 